if you are forced to add more parking on a site where you can't put it on the ground, so it becomes surface parking, you ultimately, in this case, are taking away from potential more units. Unfortunately, the question becomes, okay, well, what's more important, a couple more parking spots, or can we get a couple more units that we can get people off the streets? And so it's an unfortunate discussion, but it becomes a, an important one that we can't overlook. Hi everyone, thank you for joining us today. We have a very special guest, Roberto Campos, who is partner at Figure Architects here in Ottawa, doing very great work. I know, Roberto, you're very busy, so thank you very much for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm very, very good. Busy, but doing really well today. That's awesome. So, Roberto, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, sure. Um, well, I... I'm not originally from Ottawa. I was born in Mexico City. Uh, my parents uh, came here when I was about four years old and uh, grew up in Ottawa, in uh, in the southern part of Ottawa, I guess, which is what is the Hetherington area is where I kind of I, I, I grew up until I was about uh, 10 years old and eventually moved to the Alta Vista area. I kind of lived in, the, in that area while as I went through school. Um, First kind of went to tech school at Algonquin, which was really a really good kind of grounding for my exposure to architecture, I guess. And then after that, uh, it was actually kind of through that time that I actually worked a couple of co-op positions and, and realized, you know what, the decision makers are the architects. So maybe I need to go back to school. And and I made the decision kind of late. I, was, I think I was about 24 when I decided to go back to school and uh, ultimately got into Carleton and and did the uh, school there. And so was there for another six and a half years, close to seven years of more, more education. Eventually uh, worked at a couple of small firms. Uh, but I think really my passion for what I, I do today and, and, and the stuff uh, that I ultimately want to work on really came from working for Douglas Cardinal. He's uh, one of Canada's premier architects over history. Um, got to learn about uh, working with Indigenous communities, working on affordable housing, uh, working on a lot of major institution projects, uh, traveled across Canada for the better part of 10 years working on projects. So uh, that's kind of what really started for me. And, and, and even through there is where I kind of met my partners today on an Indigenous museum project up in northern Quebec uh, for the Cree and uh, met uh, one of my partners, Stephen Rotman, there uh, through a project that we were working collaboratively with. And, and then uh, when it was time for me to kind of look at new things, said, we're interested in opening up an office in Ottawa. They're originally out of, they're out of Montreal originally. And so I was working on that museum project for the better part of five years in and out of Montreal twice a week. And uh, so they were interested in opening up an office in Ottawa. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so we kind of talked and ultimately started started uh, our firm here in Ottawa. Uh, so that was back in 2011. And then I think what was important for us at the time was was really to not chase projects, but to chase relationships and to build relationships. That That's kind of uh, uh, one of the uh, value propositions that was really intriguing for me uh, in into doing this adventure with them. And so we spent about six or seven months just creating a, a strong business plan, kind of a, a determined what kind of clients we wanted to work with, what kind of projects we wanted to work with, but really uh, who were the people that we wanted to work with. And, and so that's kind of how it all began. 
and uh, that was back in 2011. Here we are, 12, 13 years later. So, yeah, we're, we're certainly happy that we're, we're starting to get uh, a lot of exposure and, and getting a lot of opportunities to work on some pretty interesting projects. Great philosophy. So not chasing projects, but focusing on relationships. That's very good. So your firm is involved in the design of uh, the recently announced Anglican Diocese of Ottawa plan for affordable housing. Uh, what does it take to manage stakeholder expectations in your design process for projects of this nature? You know, that is a really good, good question. Um, I think with any project, uh, you know, the role of the architect is, is certainly to be as creative as possible, to be as collaborative as possible, to be as imaginative as to the potential of a project and what it can do for a client, its business uh, or a community. At the end of the day, we always, you know, as much as architecture, we consider an art form, we, we are putting buildings in people's communities. And so that's always a big part of our, our responsibility. But also, I think, like, as you said, like, what is the expectations that we need to kind of hold in check sometimes with, with our clients and, and certainly understanding what, let's say, their goals are, their desires for the building are in relationship to their budgets, for sure. That, I think that ultimately budgets and schedules are inherent. I think we all see what's been happening with the inflation rates and cost of construction. It uh, can make a very profitable project be put on a shelf overnight uh, and so we have to be responsible we have to make sure that we understand what the limits are of the financing and and it's no different in, in the affordable housing world for sure i think uh, i think the challenge with, with with some of those is there's a lot of big visions and big hopes that uh, a lot of providers have including many who are maybe new to the development world such as like an anglican archdiocese who you know that's not their that's not their role right and so in this case they've teamed up with an affordable housing provider and so it's about tempering expectations and making sure that they understand that uh, things have costs to them and so we have to figure out a way to prioritize for sure what the end goal is what is the ultimate goal and and, and for them there was really kind of twofold it was how do they transform their lot uh, in this particular project, how do you transform their existing facility and lands into something that can continue to provide support for their congregation uh, as, as a church uh, and also provide the ability to continue with the programs that they want to do through their church? And one of them is affordable housing. And so how do they do that? And so, you know, certainly understanding that those are really the two big priorities and that everything else and every other decision that we make on that project has to be, you know, in support of those two main goals is, is, is the affordable housing provision and to continue their ability to support their congregation as a major institution for their community. And so um, when, when you can really focus on those two issues, then, you know, it's still a long challenge and a, and a long journey to get a project from beginning to end where e even after a year or two that we've been working on that file, we are a long way away before final success we are still there's still a long road to go but it will certainly be a much easier road when when we have very very strong vision for the project which is guided by understanding the goals at the end of the day wow you highlighted the fact that you know developers or firms or institutions that are newer to development they come with these grand visions and you kind of have to temper the expectations obviously it seems like you help your clients to determine like maybe their top two or three priorities right and then focus on those Obviously, that has been a challenge, but what's been the biggest challenge? 
And the reality in that particular project, aside from financing, it's affordable housing is by its very nature, it's non-for-profit, right? And so that idea that you've got a lot of money already put in the bank somewhere or in an asset investment as you would have maybe in the private sector, you know, it's very different where, you know, in the private sector, you can certainly entice new investment to happen because there's always going to be, or at least there's a promise of a return on that investment, right? Where nonprofit isn't that way. Nonprofit is very much about providing housing, you know, uh, for people who need housing. And there is no shareholder dividend at the end of that project or, or at the end of those, there's no profits to be given out. And so you we are relying on, on programs that are available out there, whether it's uh grant programs that are in place uh, provided through the city, which is money that's been brought down through provincial and federal governments, or or there's federal loan programs that are at a much lower interest rate uh, that is possible. And, and in this case also, it's about how do they provide, how does the Anglican church then provide that uh, ability for somebody else who is their partner in this, which is an affordable housing provider, how do you provide them the ability to to get land at a much much discounted rate because without those provisions then you it's really difficult to get affordable housing built uh so definitely the financing is always a challenge and i think that's certainly something that we need to look at as cities as governments as uh, and, and certainly in the private sector to incentivize building affordable housing at the end of the day it's it's really got to be an incentivized approach i think that's certainly something that we need to think about into the future we can't we can't rely on on grant money only to to combat uh, homelessness and and to combat uh, uh, the lack of housing and the affordability of housing. We have to we have to do this in partnership with the private sector. The other challenge, which is maybe not as as, as highly as intense as financing is, is on the more detail level on that project. I think um, parking parking always seems to be a problem on on any development project. It's just how do you either have too much or not enough, or you know what is. Uh, the motivations for for parking being for from a community perspective from the counselor from the planning staff it's really how how do we look at what is a an okay ratio of parking and you know with affordable housing on that particular project there is no underground parking so it's not as easy as just throwing everything underground and and dealing with it i think you had a, a guest on not too long ago who kind of explained what underground parking does cost yeah it's about 50 to 75 maybe even 80 dollars a parking spot right and it's very difficult for a for-profit developer to recoup that money let alone a non-profit who will never recoup that money and so i think uh parking is certainly a challenge and how do you provide adequate parking for affordable housing for in this case also for a congregation that you know 95 percent of the week is empty but needs significant amount of parking on days that they have ceremonies on you know specifically sundays or or the days that they have special events like weddings and funerals and other other festivities where they are going to get a couple hundred people and so uh parking parking is a challenge unfortunately it's one of those things that i don't know a single development housing project that uh, doesn't deal with parking as as a major major discussion point unfortunately so parking and financing have been the major challenges if you are forced to add more parking on a site where you can't put it on the ground so it becomes surface parking you ultimately in this case are taking away from potential more units right and when we're talking about affordable housing you're either taking away area for either more units or more green space that could be better utilized right as opposed to parking and so 
it becomes a bit of a, yeah, it's a challenge. It's a bit of a negotiation. It's a, it's making sure that you provide the adequate needs for parking, but you also want to make sure that you provide adequate housing at the same time, right? And so unfortunately, the question becomes, okay, well, what's more important? A couple more parking spots or can we get a couple more units that we can get people off the streets? And so it's an unfortunate discussion, but yeah, it, it becomes a, an important one that we can't overlook. Wow, very good points. So on your LinkedIn post, about your involvement with the Anglican Diocese Affordable Housing Project, you alluded to the possible transformation of Merrillville Road. How does design play a role in transforming a street such as Merrillville? I think, uh, you know, pretty much from baseline to, as, you know, as soon as you start getting to the Greenbelt lines of, you know, into the Barhaven, it's, you know, this is a typical suburban retail street, right, where the car was absolutely prioritized for a very, very long time. And so you have four or five lanes of traffic, if not six sometimes, uh, very little green space, very little tree lines. And really what fronts those streets is seas of parking lots and strip malls and big box stores. And so great when that was kind of the philosophy of, of you know, people escaping the city back, uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago. But you know, when we're trying to deal with sustainability and trying to encourage people to to take less cars, the way to do that is we have to in, we have to create much more walkable streets and and much more integrated street faces. And so, right now, what this project tries to do is really kind of look at what the ultimate goal of the city is when they look at arterial main streets is is to kind of create a much more pedestrian friendly, bicycle rider friendly environment at the streetscape. And so no more parking up against the road. Uh, try to bring your buildings as close as we can. Uh, there's already a plan in place for a right of way of significant width on Maryville Road. So the city does have a plan for the future to eventually add bike lanes or 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 more tree lanes. Uh, problem is you never know what that's going to be. That could be you know another 10 years before we see that, another 20 years before we see that. So, But we have to plan for it ahead of time. Uh, and so really kind of looking at how the building faces and, and treatments ultimately contribute to that, to that frontage. It's no longer about a big parking lot, which even the church does today, right? The existing church, a part of the church does come close to the property lines on Merrill Road, but a, I would say 50, 60% of the frontage along Maryville Road of the church is parking lot, right? And so even the way we're going to be, even the church itself was designed in that kind of, in that sense. So really the idea is to kind of look at making buildings and pedestrians the priority along the streets and sidewalks along Maryville Road. And, and, and it's not going to happen overnight. It's uh, the idea is that this is one project. And as the next project gets developed and as the next developer shows up on another site or another retail strip gets looked at to get redeveloped, then the idea is the city is going to start to look at how can that also then contribute to a future goal of, of making Maryville Road a much you know, pedestrian friendlier street. That's good. So that's the transformation, making it more pedestrian yeah. friendly and bicycle friendly as well. Yeah. And making sure that there's adequate access to public transit and making those other modes of transportation, such as bicycle riding, easier to do, right? Nobody wants to ride their bike up Maryville Road right now. It's pretty ominous and dangerous for a lot of people. And it's pretty clear to see why, uh, you know, it really is an arterial highway. It's moving people from the downtown core to Barhaven, right? And, and vice versa at the beginning of the day, it's a people mover, right? And so really what we want to do, is, you know, I think the goal ultimately of the city and us on this particular project is to, to contribute to that streetscape that's much more pedestrian friendly.
Okay, that's very good. And as an architect, how do you factor in design for affordable type of housing? Is that a factor? Uh, yeah, there's always factors. Uh, and, you know, a lot of affordable housing providers uh, have very similar criteria and some of them don't. And we also do a lot, a lot of work for for-profit developers. So we kind of understand the motivations behind a lot of the builders. And so with affordable housing, I think some of the big things that are coming in is certainly sustainability. You know, with affordable housing, the provider is usually going to hold on to the property in perpetuity, right? They're not, there's no goal at the end of the day, you know, five years from now to sell it to a pension fund or to, uh, to an investment firm, which is a totally different motivation, right? And so sustainability may not be a high priority factor for them. They'll, they'll really only do what's required under the Ontario Building Code or whatever is negotiated with them through the development process with planning staff and the counselor. But it's very hard to kind of enforce that other than what's enforced in the building code. So when you get a lot of affordable housing providers that knowing that they're going to be the long-term landlord of that building, in many cases, they have two motivations. They want to keep the energy costs because uh, it helps with their tenancy. You know, when, when we talk about you know, and when I mean about affordable housing, because I know there's that discussion about what is the definition of affordable yes. housing, and there is no real clear definition of affordable housing. Everyone has their different interpretations. When we when we deal with a lot of the non for profits, it's it's certainly a lot of it is catering to the lower economics end of the spectrum with with people who are living there, right? And so, the idea that if you can get their energy bill to very minimal, then you're allowing them another level of possibility of success, right? Where you're not having to burden them, especially in a world today where electronics is so pertinent in everyday life, that all takes energy. And so if you can provide a, a facility that is highly efficient from an energy perspective, then hopefully the idea is that you pass those savings down onto the tenants, right? And so that it gives them a, a, another level of potential success so that they don't have to worry about their you know, $100, $150 energy bill at the end of the month. That is one. But also, you know, obviously, if, if the building can also be sustained uh, or self-sustaining, then, you know, all the common areas that the landlord is on the hook for to covering those costs, then it certainly helps them out knowing that they don't have to worry about those energy costs if the building is ultimately energy efficient. But quality, I think, is important for them because they're holding on to the building in perpetuity, right? And so they don't want to have to repair components of the building on a regular basis because it was much cheaper to do on day one, but may not last 10, 15 years. They want that building and those components to last 20, 25, 30 years, right? If not indefinitely. Those are probably some of the big criteria that, that we look at is, is certainly sustainability. Not all non-for-profits uh, are like that. Some of them also have limitations to what they can do and, and the funds that they have access to. So we're always looking to balance out cost versus quality for sure as best as we possibly can but certainly i think a big one is sustainability and meeting their program requirements for sure so not-for-profit housing providers have a real motivation to make their buildings more sustainable and energy efficient i think there's always been this misnomer in many cases that says well affordable housing must be cheap made housing in fact i would say most of the affordable housing projects that we've ever worked on have been probably had 
some of the best budgets that we've had to deal with with regards to cost per square foot because of the upfront capital investment that's needed to do highly sustainable projects. And then knowing that they want a quality project, they'd rather invest in a, in a quality product that's going to last them a lot longer. It, uh, it's savings on their operational costs, in headache costs, if they don't have to you know, replace windows in 15 years. You know, those are big things that they have to consider, right? They're, they're holding on to the building long term. So they know these are things that they're going to inherit. And what do you mean by best budget? I would say the square foot cost is higher. Again, it's just a lot of it is related to the capital investment that they're willing to make to provide a quality building. And in many cases, a lot of the funding is pertinent on and conditional on highly sustainable requirements, right? So it's certainly a lot of the CMHC Financing requirements have high stringent requirements on sustainability and accessibility, which are in many cases way beyond what the building code requires. So they're inherently re- having to do it in order to qualify for some of the grant programs that they're that they're looking for. Wow! So it seems affordable housing providers build some of the best buildings. Then I, I would say so. Yeah, at least today, for sure. Wow! It's counterintuitive. You would think affordable or cheap. It's a different motivation for many profit developers out there. The economics of the value of that building is not in the bricks and mortar, but in the long-term rental revenue, then your investment in the bricks and mortar is going to be a little bit more tempered. Yes. So real estate development, especially in Ottawa, often involves preserving historical structures. What has been your experience with architectural preservation and adaptive reuse projects in Ottawa? Uh, yeah, we've actually done quite a few on both fronts. We kind of look at this in two parts. Uh, heritage is one thing, you know, especially if it's on the registry list. If it's something that is of significant historical value, I think that is certainly something that we have been involved in. Obviously, you know, there's another layer of bureaucracy and approval process that you have to go through. So certainly a little bit more of a challenge, but at the same time, we look at those as opportunities and making sure that we can, whatever we do, we ultimately celebrate that heritage, even though it's pretty clear to see that what we do is very contemporary work. So when we look at heritage buildings, we we try to look at those buildings as opportunities to contribute to a design value or an experiential value. I think that's why we're attracted to those heritage buildings. And so in one hand, the tension, and in, in the other hand, the celebration between a modern building and, a, and, and the heritage aspects of, a, of an existing facility are always a great opportunity for to create quality experiences between those conditions. But certainly the, the challenges with those projects is just the bureaucracy, having to deal with the approvals process, which I understand. You know, sometimes it's great when you're certainly working on a project that is of significant heritage experience and value. We we did a project that didn't actually have a heritage building, but we were on a heritage zone in downtown Ottawa. And, and so... Uh, knowing that we had to respect what was happening along the street, which had huge heritage value, it was always something we had to work collaboratively with the people at the city of Ottawa and, and people of the heritage committees, but ultimately came up with ideas that created a really great project because of it. And so that collaboration was really important. You know, there's certainly times where we get frustrated sometimes where we look at a project that, you know, is on the list, but isn't really being celebrated properly or is, I guess, getting some pushback from the city with regards to protecting a building for the sake of just protecting the building and, and knowing that it's just going to be so cost prohibitive, especially if it's a, a private developer that has to, has to deal with it. And again, as you know, there's no infinite financing when it comes to development. There's a limit to a budget. And so 
having to preserve heritage buildings is not a cheap endeavor at all. And so having to to look at those projects and, and work collaboratively with the people at the city can sometimes be a challenge knowing that, well, if you can't make the budgets work, then, you know, the reality is, is the developer is just going to walk. And if they walked in that building, which is, you know, maybe not in the greatest of condition is still left exposed to the elements. It's not getting fixed. It's not getting uh, restored and it's only going to degrade even more and eventually is is ultimately not going to be salvageable. So you're not really winning if you don't find ways to work together and work collaboratively and understand what some of the priorities are. So I would say those are those are really the big challenges with with heritage preservation. You had mentioned adaptive reuse, and we certainly are huge proponents of adaptive reuse. We are working now on our second adaptive reuse project here in Ottawa. We have one under construction, which is an office building turned into residential. We just signed our second one just a few weeks ago, which is in in the downtown core for 13 stories of office use to be converted into residential. I think this is... uh, especially here in Ottawa, is a massive opportunity to provide much-needed housing, to reinvigorate a downtown core, which has been decimated by the leaving of the federal government uh, office employees. And so I think that to look at adaptive reuse of office buildings is, is certainly something that we definitely love to look at. Like I said, we are working on a few of them. And so I think this is an important thing to combat both sustainability and housing, for sure. Uh, you know, the challenge is making sure that the floor plates are conducive to housing. We've been pretty lucky in the last two projects that uh, they are, but that's always going to be a bit of a challenge. But certainly adaptive reuse, whether it's uh, turning it into housing or turning it into community spaces or turning it into an institutional building, I think is an absolute huge opportunity for any architect or or anybody to to save buildings and to give them new life for sure. Uh, You know, a big part of waste in the world is construction waste. And so why would we want to divert even more construction waste to landfills for no reason if we can reuse some of these existing structures. That's very good. And how has the pandemic influenced the way you approach designing spaces for real estate, particularly in terms of remote work? Yeah, like there hasn't been definitely a big demand for office space, (laughs) fortunately. Uh, We did just finish uh, a headquarters for a client out in Barhaven not too long ago, but they were very specific. They were leasing space before, but they wanted to build a new new headquarters. But the idea of, you know, a lot of office tenant fit up is not something that's a huge demand anymore. As we can see, you know, even in the government, we're seeing a lot less demand for it. So Again, why the adaptive reuse of these projects is hugely important. But where we are starting to see it is is how it trickles into our multi-unit residential mixed-use projects for sure. Whether it's the offerings of much better uh, amenity spaces. We I have an office in Montreal as well, and we have clients in Montreal that also do multi-unit residential. And the rental world, which has always been a huge way of life in Montreal, where it's really been rental over the last five, six years in Ottawa. It's kind of been a bit of a way of life in Montreal for for a very long time. And so the amenity offerings that you see in a lot of the multi-unit residential projects in the Montreal area offer a lot of amenity space. You know, to have a swimming pool is almost a given in a Montreal multi-unit residential project. To have co-working spaces is a very popular thing in the Montreal area, which we're now starting to see now. We actually have a couple of clients here one who has a major investor out of Montreal and one who is a Montreal developer now building here in Ottawa, uh, it's a given that we need to provide much higher quality amenity spaces. It's it's just kind of what they've been doing in Montreal. So when they come here, they're like, why would you not provide quality amenity spaces for, for tenants, you know, especially through the pandemic when they were stuck at their dining room, 
you know, their kitchen island for, for a year and a half as their office to give them a space to go to that's beyond their 600 square foot unit. We're certainly starting to see a lot of requirements from our for-profit developers to include things like co-working spaces. That's a big one that we started to see a lot of demand, even though, you know, we're technically now kind of out or at the tail end of the pandemic. The demand for that co-working space for the flexible unit spaces are certainly something that uh, is being considered for sure. Whether it's making sure that balcony spaces are considered all the time is certainly a big one to give people a balcony space to go to when before when they were locked down, they really didn't have, you know, you couldn't really go out. You were being asked to stay home as much as possible. And so that balcony space was a huge refuge for a lot of people, certainly looking at uh, being asked to look at uh, those kind of things for sure. Wow, that's very good. Building co-working spaces in multifamily buildings sounds very good. Yeah, like I think we're we're seeing more demand for that than uh, you know even a gym. You know, anybody who's very serious about going to the gym is likely not going to use the little gym that's in their rental building or their condo building. They you know they're going to be the ones getting pretty good fitness you know, membership somewhere at one of those high-end gym facilities where you can get a lot more offerings. But certainly, you know, the ability to move from your, you know, living room coffee table or your dining room island, kitchen island to a space where you can have a bit of a desk uh, or a table, uh, even access to a printer, I think is something that gets added as part of these co-working spaces, uh, you know, a little coffee machine or, or a printer uh, is certainly something that we have been seeing a lot of requests for from our from our clients. Wow, that's very good. So one last question for you, Roberto. What ongoing architectural projects in Ottawa do you find exciting? I would say the most exciting project right now that's happening, besides obviously there's the huge institutional projects and citywide building projects that are happening. I think ZB is, is a game changer for sure. I think as ZB ultimately bleeds into also the Le Breton into the future is a big one, but certainly ZB was the start of it in how we looked at our waterfronts. You know, we are a waterfront city, but we weren't really taking advantage of it for a very, very long time until ZB came along, creating a vibrant, uh, beautiful community between Gatineau and Ottawa that is highly sustainable, has some pretty good architecture, it is absolutely amazing. Very good, very good. Well, Roberto, this has been a great conversation. So many great points you brought out. I have to go back and listen. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's always uh, it's a pleasure. Have a good one. Thank you very much for taking the time and we'll stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you.